After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces and to the officials. Of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods." A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Lord, would you reveal your glorious plan to us as we study this text together today? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are now in week three of a series called Esther, The Hidden King Delivers. Today, we're going to consider how God is calling us to make a stand, even when the circumstances may seem unclear. Now, before we dive in, I need to admit that as we've been in this series together, almost every time I hear Esther, I think of a green grape saying, Queen Essie. Maybe you've seen the VeggieTales version of Esther like me. And then as we're walking through the text, you're finding out that VeggieTales isn't exactly textually accurate. I mean, 
Vashti's refusal wasn't that she just declined to make the king a sandwich, if you know what I mean. Whether you're hearing Queen Essie in your mind like me and reflecting back on that, or whether you've done a study of this book with friends, or maybe even if you're hearing this for the first time with us, I'm so glad that you're tracking through this book. A quick refresher for context before we dive into chapter 3. The Jews had been living in exile away from the promised land of Jerusalem, living in exile among the Babylonians ever since the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. They remained there in exile until the Persians then defeated the Babylonians in 540 BC. And then not long after that defeat, Cyrus the Great, he was the king of the Persia, he gave the Jews permission to return to Jerusalem. So in 538 BC, Zerubbabel led the first group back. However, some of the Jews decided to remain in exile. They had settled into a pretty comfortable standard of living. Now, they hadn't given up on God's promise or their identity as Jews. They just weren't super excited about returning back to a ruined and isolated land. In fact, among the Persians, they were able to live pretty comfortably, even attaining high positions of influence, as we see here in Esther and as we would see with Nehemiah later on. God's people were scattered, some in Jerusalem, some in exile. But they hadn't lost their identity. It was just that the promises of being a set-apart, chosen people weren't exactly easy to see. It was a time when God's plan could have easily felt unclear. And in times when God's plan isn't clear, It becomes difficult to know when we should make a move or take a stand or speak up. And so as we're reading through Esther chapter 3, a natural question is, what would I do if I were Mordecai? I've contemplated a version of that question so many times. If it was up to me to make a stand for God, would I stand? As a teenager, I heard stories of Christian martyrs who were given an ultimatum, deny Christ or die. They stood strong in their faith and they lost their life. I remember as a teenager saying, that's the type of faith that I want to have. And the crazy thing is, as I've learned through the years, it's just as difficult when it's not clear what the consequence will be. It's just as hard or even harder to make a stand when the consequences aren't clear. I could tell you a story of middle school Tommy not standing up when some friends were making terrible choices. I didn't speak up. I didn't stand up and the outcome was bad. However, that same middle school Tommy did make a stand once. And the result was that I lost friends. It's easy to reflect back on that now and see that it was God working behind the scenes to lead me to better friends and a better future. But at the time, for zero friends, middle school Tommy, it was so hard. Have you ever felt like it's hard to see God working? Felt like God's plan isn't clear and the options don't feel easy? You don't know what to do? When we feel like this, It's difficult to find the courage to stand. 
The truth is we all experience these moments ever since the garden, the beginning of time. There's a struggle in the hearts and minds of God's people. You see, Haman's hostility towards God's people was just the latest expression of Satan's ongoing warfare against God and his people. This hidden spiritual conflict is also part of our experience as Christians. The battle for the hearts and minds of mankind that began in the garden and continues throughout all time. Those who belong to the people of God are frequently feeling this tension. So as we explore the passage today, and we continue to see the working of the hidden king using his people to make a move, to make a stand for his glory. We're diving in in chapter 3, and we had spent time in chapter 2, and the, the gap there is about five years from what we discussed last week. And even though in a week in the year 2020 that can seem like five years, it's not a 2020 joke. It really has been just a five-year gap here. And five years had passed since Mordecai had saved the king's life there at the end of chapter 2. And our chapter opens with an introduction to Haman. We might have expected to read that five years later, Mordecai is the one being promoted among the king's officials, but instead it's Haman. And Haman becomes a central figure in the rest of the book. We're told in verse 2 that everyone bowed to Haman. But then it says that they did so because the king had commanded it. It's an interesting addition to say the least. You see, it was commonplace to bow and honor those in authority. But for Haman, it's not because he's honorable. It's because the king commanded it. It's an early clue to the character of the man that we will see develop throughout the rest of the book. Haman was recognized not because of his character or his ability, but because of the office he filled and because of the edict of the king. And the plot thickens. The questions arise. What about Mordecai? Is the king that clueless? Did he miss this? How could he not promote Mordecai? It's a moment for us to acknowledge that the real king is not Ahasuerus. He may have the title, but it's the hidden king who's ultimately in command. And God permitted Haman to be appointed to this high office because he had a purpose to fulfill through him. In verse 2, it says, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Why did Mordecai refuse to bow? Well, our little green grape VeggieTales Mordecai says it's because he won't bow to anyone other than God. And while this explanation is plausible... There are numerous examples that would show Jews are willing to bow to show honor to those in authority, as long as it doesn't dishonor God. Additionally, Mordecai clearly demonstrates honor and respect for King Ahasuerus, and he was the one who had given the command to honor Haman. Well, some have suggested the reason Mordecai doesn't bow is because Haman may have been wearing an idol on his clothing and on necklace somehow. And Mordecai was simply refusing to bow, not to Haman, but to the idol. We can only speculate. Maybe Mordecai was jealous of Haman's promotion, perhaps. 
The reason is unknown for because it's not clearly stated in the text. It's not directly said. But before we move on, I want to mention something that I think is so important. We have all kinds of opportunities as we work our way through a text to learn from history, to learn from culture, context clues, even to speculate what have, might have been like in the story. But anytime we do this, we need to remember that the more we move away from the text to build a lesson, we create a system of biblical exposition that isn't fully rooted in the word itself. For example, if we determine that Mordecai's motive was jealousy, we use that motive as a filter that colors the rest of our reading of this passage and book. We interpret all the moves of Mordecai from a place of jealousy. So we must always allow the text, the scripture, to lead our understanding. And we need to be cautious of the ways that we approach scripture with an idea or a filter, an assumption that's not found in the scripture itself, and then allow that to influence our understanding. This is a danger that easily leads to building unbiblical beliefs. Now, I know that that feels like a little bit of a diversion, but as I was studying the text this week and I was searching what would be the motivation for Mordecai, I found myself stuck here for a long time. I was asking, why would Mordecai make a stand now? Like, why this moment? Why not before sending Esther away? As I was churning all this through my mind, this principle of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, Letting the text speak for itself. That's what led me to an answer. You see, I wanted to examine myself. Am I bringing something to the text? Am I bringing something, even if it's from like an awesome cartoon of a green grape? I need to recognize that I'm bringing this to the table when I read the text. This is so important. And I think if you zone out for the rest of this message, and you just remember this one principle of reading scripture, you'll be better equipped for a healthy study of God's word. Okay, back to our passage. The most likely explanation for Mordecai's refusal is found by following this principle. And while the text doesn't list it directly, it does give us some key details. In the first verse of our passage, Haman is introduced as Haman the Agagite. This means he was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were the archenemy of the Israelites in the time of Moses. In Exodus chapter 17, as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them in the wilderness, and God cursed them and declared, as we look together, Exodus 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it, in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And then, this is not like just a blip in the story. It's not just one of those small verses. Later in Deuteronomy 25, God restates this purpose, starting in verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of, of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. 
Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. You shall not forget. Later on, during the reign of King Saul, God ordered him to destroy the Amalekites completely. However, Saul didn't follow God's instructions. He spared King Agag and took loot in clear disobedience of God's command. And God was displeased with Saul. And that disobedience resulted in him losing his throne. So when Mordecai is introduced to us in chapter 2, there's a shortened genealogy in verse 5 that makes the point to show that Mordecai is a descendant of Saul, tracing his lineage back to Kish, who is the father of King Saul. When we put these pieces together, it becomes clear that the text is definitely highlighting this tension. And the more I studied, the more this larger story of God's work through Scripture rose to the surface. Friends, when we take the time to dig, to learn, to study Scripture, we find gold. It is never a waste of time to study Scripture deeply. We search just for the word Agagite, and it shows that it's only used in the Bible five times. The rest of the time, Agag and all the descendants of Amalek are called Amalekites. So those five uses are all found here in Esther. And besides the very first time as Haman's introduced as an Agagite in verse 1, every other time it's used, the verse explicitly says, the enemy of the Jews. The text is making it clear. The reason for calling Haman an Agagite is because these people are enemies of God's people. God had declared that his people were the Israelites and that the Amalekites were the enemy. Sometimes we can read through the Old Testament and these feuds, they feel petty or even like stubborn tribalism sometimes. We wonder with our modern worldview, it's difficult to see how it makes sense. We struggle to understand the importance of Israel's ethnic identity and why God would declare one group chosen and another group the enemy. In these moments of difficulty, the answer for us is to remember that God's grand plan unfolds throughout Scripture. For example, the extermination of the Jews here would mean the end of the messianic promise for the world. The reason God promised to protect his people was that they would become the channel through whom he might give the word of God and the son of God to the world. Israel was to bring the blessing of salvation to all the nations. So when we zoom in tightly on this moment that Mordecai made a stand, we need to remember that this is only the latest stage for God's unfolding plan. Even though the Jews have been living in relative peace, and even though Mordecai didn't have it all figured out, he wasn't some shiny, perfect hero, but by faith, he made a stand. And he sets the stage for the grand story of God to unfold. God had two people, prepared and in place, Mordecai and Queen Esther, and he was ready to act. This hidden king, 
He's still at work today. And the next act in this same story is unfolding now, even when it's hard to see. King Saul, a a Benjamite, he failed to destroy the Amalekites. But Mordecai, also a Benjamite, took up the battle and defeated Haman. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau. And Esau was the enemy of his brother Jacob. Each is just another stage in the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Satan and the Lord, the way of faith and the way of the world. So what about you? Mordecai made a move that was aligned with God's grand plan for the salvation of his people. It may not have seemed monumental, but God used this move to set the stage to demonstrate his glory. So what about you? Let's reflect on this together. What is your Mordecai moment? We may feel small, unseen, and unimportant, but the hidden king is still working. He still sees you, and he's preparing you to act. The enemy wants us to focus on ourselves, our own desires, desires that are birthed in sin. The Holy Spirit is what awakens us lifts our eyes to see a glimpse of the bigger story, and God empowers us to make a stand. Friends, let's ask together that God would give us a moment to be a Mordecai, to be a part of his working out of his great plan of the salvation of his people. What if we all did this? What if each of us made one small move this week? What if hundreds of people across Greene County made a stand for God's glory? Mordecai's move helped change an empire and save God's people. What about us? God, would you empower us by your spirit to stand, to make a stand when it counts, not for our own sake, but for yours not for our own glory, but for your glory. For on our own, God, we have nothing to offer. On our own, we are certainly lost. Yet in your love for us and your great plan, you sent Jesus to be the sacrifice and righteousness that we so desperately needed, giving us the ability to stand, 
not on who we are, but on the perfect life of Jesus our Savior. So equip us. Equip us now to stand. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.